Good Wednesday afternoon, everybody. My name is Tim, and I am coming to you from the Deep End Studios here at Waters Church on Wednesday at noon, live on Facebook and YouTube. So glad to have you. Hey, it's Pride Month, the month of June. Are you in the celebration spirit? Today, we discuss the prostitute and the beast of Revelation chapter 17. Seems appropriate. I'll tell you, if you make it through this podcast, you have guts. Hopefully, YouTube doesn't shut us down. This will most likely be the least politically correct episode of The Deep End. This is the Bible, and this is The Deep End Podcast, where we talk about the Bible in modern-day language. Thank you for joining us. This is The Deep End. Okay, everybody, welcome again. My name is Tim, and I'm so happy that you are with us. This is going to be a touchy subject podcast, but it's a good one. It's a healthy one. It's an important one because we need to understand how to see reality for what it really is. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. But before we get to the book of Revelation, a little bit of news about this Deep End podcast, which I know you all love. And by the way, in the comments section, whether on, your, whether on YouTube or Facebook, let us know where you're watching from. We always love to know. I read the comments. Yes, I do. Every single one. And I like to find out where you're watching from. Oh, yeah, where you're watching or listening from. Uh, If you're listening, you can't comment because you're listening on a podcast app. But good news is this. The deep end is spreading. It's like a disease, okay? It's like a virus spreading all over the place. We're going to be on Woonsocket Radio. Woohoo, Woonsocket, yay. Maddie, our producer over there, she's at our Woonsocket campus. Hello, Maddie. Wave so everybody can see you. Okay. She is the worship director at our Woonsocket campus of Waters Church. But we're going to be on the radio, the deep end, Uh, 12.40 a.m., Woon. W-O-O-N. I guess that's the call letters of the station. AM, 1240. And not just AM. Nope. We're going to be on FM. So FM 99.3, Thursday nights, 7 p.m. You can also download the app TuneIn from any device and listen through that app. That is exciting. The deep end is spreading like a virus. Ha <laughs> ha. Only a healthy one. <laughs> so that's the news. And uh, I got a couple other things that we can talk about. But big news uh, is that tonight is the Bruins. The Bruins are going to be playing Game 7 of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Go Bruins. Woohoo! It has been almost 130 days since the Boston area has celebrated a national championship. Too long. Am I right? Too long. If you're listening outside the New England area, you have my permission to vomit. But if you are in the New England area, woohoo, go Bruins. Let's hopefully, let's hopefully see they, they do it tonight. Um, 2019 champions. By the way, guys, here in the studio, did you know that if the Bruins win the championship tonight, that the city of Boston will be the first city in, um, since 1935 to have three of the four major, champion, major league sports teams having their championship in the same year? Since 1935. Isn't that bananas? I was raised in the New England area. I remember when we were the lovable losers. Now we are intolerable winners. And I got to tell you, I like being the intolerable winners a heck of a lot better than the lovable losers. Okay? Speaking of winners, did you know that in Christ we are winners? And that's what brings us to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. Okay, Book of Revelation, chapter 17, everybody. We are talking about the prostitute and the beast. Revelation, chapter 17. If you have your Bibles out, 
Uh, you can follow along with us, but if you're listening or watching and uh, just follow along with me, the scriptures will be up here on the screen behind me. Revelation chapter 17 is the chapter that perplexes many a Bible scholars, and it has perplexed many a Bible scholars throughout history. In fact, Revelation chapter 17 is one of those chapters that causes most Bible teachers to avoid the book of Revelation like the plagues that are in the book of Revelation. But this is one of the most exciting chapters of the book as well. It demands that we seek God's wisdom in its study. In fact, even in the middle of the book, uh, I'm sorry, of chapter 17, the book actually tells us to ask for wisdom. Revelation chapter 17 verse 9 says, this calls for a mind of wisdom. So if you can understand what God is saying through his word, we need a mind of wisdom, mind with wisdom. Well, how do we get wisdom? We ask God. And so what you don't see us do here in the studio right before the Deep End podcast filming is we pray and ask God for wisdom that he might speak. And we did that. And so I'm trusting that the wisdom of God will be revealed to you as we talk about what is probably a very important topic today. Let's get into it, shall we? Revelation chapter 17, verse 1 and 2. Here's what it says. Now remember, this is actually just a little bit of a context. Remember, this is the, uh, the seven angels have just poured out their seven judgment bowls, and I talked about this in previous episodes, that the wrath of God in its fullest expression was coming upon the world. So this is like the final expression of God's wrath upon the world which rejects him. And so now what we're going to look at is the unfolding of that wrath, especially that seventh bowl as the uh, the, the final culmination of God's wrath comes upon the uh, citizens of the world. And what does that look like? And how does that happen? And you're going to be surprised when you find out actually how that happens. Okay, because we think about the wrath of God, we think, oh, God is that vengeful, vengeful hateful God throwing arrows at us from the sky. That's not necessarily the case. We're going to see something here in Revelation chapter 17 that's going to help us put some context to the wrath of God. Okay, so Revelation chapter 17, let's get back now into the text, verse 1 and 2. This time I promise to read it when it's up on the screen. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment. Okay, so remember, we're going to see the judgment of who? Of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. I've got these bolded there for a reason. With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Lots of important terms in those first two verses that kind of shape the teaching of the rest of the chapter. So, first we have to see that the angel says, I want to show you the judgment on the great prostitute. This is the whore of Babylon that has been already alluded to in earlier chapters of Revelation. Here she is called the great prostitute, and she's seated on many waters. We'll talk about what the waters are in just a moment. But I want you to think about how this woman, the, the whore of Babylon, who represents something that is alive and well in our world today, uh, and how she is described as a prostitute. So stay with me for a moment because Revelation speaks in symbols and pictures so that Christians can understand the real things behind what looks real. Remember, Revelation shows us what is most real, not just what is real, what is mo what's behind the reality. So being described as a great prostitute, think about prostitution. What is prostitution? Prostitution, okay, is not something necessarily that 
you jump into. Prostitution is something that comes after you. Like, it's not hard, okay? And I don't know this from experience. I'm just, I've watched a lot of movies, okay? It's not hard to get a prostitute. They come after you. You're in the wrong side of town, wrong street in some city. They're going to come find you. And they live to allure. Uh, They are easy and cheap. Now, I don't know that from experience. I'm just going with the movie Pretty Woman. That's all. That's my <laughs> that's my research <laughs> for this segment of the Deep End Podcast. Okay, they come and they find you. And here's what, what John is being shown here. That the system of this world will come and find you. Okay, that's what you have to see. They, the system of this world is alluring. The system of this world is cheap and easy. It is easy to get caught up in the system of this world. And notice in verse 2 it says, the kings of the earth have committed a sexual morality with the great prostitutes. So this is a pervasive influence upon the authorities of nations, kings of the earth. So not just the, the, the layperson, not just the citizens of the earth, but the power structures of the earth are going to be in bed with this satanic force of sexual immorality, which will be described also with other terms in a, a couple of verses from now. She is seated on many waters. Now, waters are a symbol, we've already talked about this before, of Gentile nations or the plurality of nations on the earth. So she's seated on the waters. Now, seated is important because it's saying that she is more than just a part of the culture of the world. She is on top of the culture. She's the first thing that you see in the culture. And so when a Christian looks at their world, they can't just look at the world and say, well, that's just how things are. No, they got to see that there is a force dominant over the world. Christian, are you aware of this? Are you aware of the fact that there's a system in the world that is alluring, that will come and find you, that is easy and cheap, and that will ultimately, what does it say here in the last part of verse 2? Make you drunk with the wine of sexual immorality. Now, think about drunkenness. What, is, what does drunkenness represent? Drunkenness represents a loss of consciousness, sobriety, ability to reason, think. How about this? An ability to walk straight. What's one of the tests that police officers take you through when you are pulled over and you might be drinking a few? They have you try to walk in a straight line. And if you can't, you, pat, you fail the test. What does drunkenness do? Drunkenness causes you to lose your equilibrium, your balance, your way of just being able to manage your life. And really what drunkenness is in the, in the scriptures is drunkenness is a symbol for confusion. It's a symbol for you get to the place where you have lost sense of what is real. And here in Gen- Revelation chapter 17, we are seeing that the nations lose sense. Listen, this is so important that you get this. Lose sense of what is real. They become drunken on sexual immorality. And now we're talking about the end times, okay? So the more we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, I want you to hear me say this, the more sexually immoral the nations will become, and not just the nations, but what did it say? The kings of the earth will be in bed with this great prostitute. They will be the purveyors of sexual immorality in the world. 
Now, Pastor, do you think that's happening now? Absolutely I do. First, let me back up a little bit as to why. And Romans chapter 1 unpacks this. Because Romans chapter 1 starts with the fact that God was not worshipped. When people refused to worship God, it says in Romans chapter 1 that God said, okay, you won't worship me. I'm going to give you up to what you will worship. And what does he give them up to worshipping? Their own flesh and then inordinate sexual behaviors become the reality. And then people are more in love with that. Now, here's what you have to understand. And I know we're going to talk about sex a lot today, so just bear with me. I, you know, I, I, it's in the text. I got to deal with it. So let's just talk about it, okay? Here's the deal. Sex and sexual morality is a disordered appetite, not sex itself, but sexual morality, is a disordered appetite for what God alone can give. I want you to hear me say that again. Sexual morality is a disordered appetite for what God alone can give. If you will not find that deep heart's desire for companionship, intimacy, um, being fully known, being fully, and pardon the language here, but being naked and unashamed before someone else with whom you share life with, Okay, if you will not find that in God, you will try to find that in sexual immorality. That's the promise of sexual immorality. That's the appetite that it tries to purvey on the world. And many people, in fact, predominantly the, 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 the vast majority of people, fall for this. Now, I remember there's a book called The World, the Flesh, and Father Smith. It was written by a lesser-known mid-20th century Scottish writer named Bruce Marshall in 1945. It's about this faithful Catholic father named Father Smith, and he's a very faithful Catholic priest in this small village. And one day he's leaving the parish to go home, and he sees a prostitute on the street, and he gets into a conversation. This is a, you know, a very unique conversation for Father Smith. And the, the prostitute really wants to talk to the priest, and she asks him about, you know, how many people really believe your stuff anymore? Like, really, like virgin birth, resurrection? I mean, it sounds like a bunch of nonsense. And, and, uh, and she says, you know, I've been dying to actually talk to you about, talk to one of you, Catholic priests, about this for years because uh, it seems like you're never at any of the parties that I go to. Well, well, duh, of course he's not. So anyway, they get into conversations, and so she walks along with her for a little while, and they have this give and take, this back and forth, and eventually, the woman says, you know, I got a question for you, Father. How can you get along without us? Like, and she's talking about celibacy. How can you priests get along without sex? Because that just seems like, in my world, that seems like impossible. And his answer in the book is so great. He says, uh, in my view, women's bodies are rarely perfect, and they soon grow old and sag. And always the contemplation of them, even at their best, is a poor and boring substitute for walking with God in his house as a friend. <laughs> Don't get offended, ladies. He's just talking about the nature nature's reality. He's basically saying, look, God is unchangeable and he's actually the truest desire of your heart. So if you put all your hope into sex, you're going to be disappointed because bodies always fade. Bodies always get old. Bodies droop and sag and they get, they eventually die. So it's a, you can worship it for as long as you want, but eventually it just erodes and it hits the earth. Okay. Um, so she says, well, you know, to be honest with you, father, I don't agree with anything you're saying. And I believe that religion, this is her line, is only a substitute for sex. In other words, you, you, you're, you're, you've got suppressed or repressed sexual urges, and so you choose to medicate yourself on religion. Basically, that's her, that's her argument. And Father Smith counters like this. He says, I still prefer to believe that sex is a substitute for religion. 
and that the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Bam, like mic drop. That's, I just love that story because I believe that. I do believe that. I believe that when a man chases sexual morality or a woman or a person, any person chases sexual morality or any kind of sexual fulfillment outside of God's order from the garden, male, female, monogamous, heterosexual for life, that really what they're hoping for is something that God alone can give them. You, you, you just have to realize this. Like all the promises of sexual morality fail you and God is the one who can actually fulfill you in that same desire to be naked and fully known, to be unashamed, to be intimate, to be close, to be loved as you are forever. And all the movies, they all talk about, all the love story movies, they all talk about this love forever. Uh, you know, they end with the, with the promise that the two people who were like forlorn, you know, long lost you know, star-crossed lovers finally get together in the last scene. They get married, and we just imagine that they what? They live happily ever after, right? That's the, that's the theme of every romantic movie out there. Well, the reality is, is that we have made love and sex and these kind of activities uh, the gods of our culture. And because they are now the gods of our culture, when we, uh, when we turn away from God's orders and God's ways of doing these things, we will fall into these traps of sexual morality. And the scriptures are saying here in Revelation chapter 17, that it's the kings of the earth who will lead the way here. Listen, the kings of the earth who will lead the way in sexual morality being pervasively accepted, condoned, supported, and promoted in societies. So that brings me to Pride Month. It's the month of June. This is our first episode of the Deep End Podcast in the month of June. And again, hopefully YouTube, hopefully you don't shut me down. I know we only have like 20 watchers, so you're probably not that concerned about us. But anyway, what, what do we have right now in this month? We have a celebration. Think about it. the theme of the month is what? Pride. P-R-I-D-E, pride. Like, we're celebrating pride. Pride in what? Pride in my sexuality. Pride in my sexual practices, my sexual preferences. This is a fog. Do you, do you see the drunkenness of our culture? Do you see the drunkenness? We are celebrating people's pride in their sexual proclivities, which they tell us is none of our business, so we should stay out of their business. But wait, they want to be proud about it and throw parades about it, and celebrate it, and, and teach our kids about it. And curriculums are being passed right now in the state of California and in Massachusetts to promote this to kids as young as five and six years old. I mean, this is going to get worse and worse. This is going to get more pervasive in our culture. And our leaders are initiating the acceptance and promotion of it. I want you to think how crazy it is that we have a whole month to celebrate pride in sexual immorality. Because we don't celebrate, this month is not celebrating being proud that you're heterosexual monogamous. Oh, no, no, no. You're not even allowed to have that. Chris Evans on Twitter, the, the guy who plays Captain America in the Marvel movies, got all worked up in a tizzy on titter, titter, Twitter because somebody suggested we have straight pride parades. And he got all mad. Oh, he got angry. You should see it. But he's, what is he saying? You, you have no right to celebrate heterosexuality. No, 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 no. This is all about anything other than what God's word says is right, good, just, pure, and true. Like, think about it. It's a whole month. I want you to th consider this. We don't have a month that celebrates women. We don't have a month that celebrates men. We don't have a month that celebrates marriage. We don't have a month that celebrates military, the military, which protects us and keeps us free. We don't even have a month that celebrates our nation. We have days for that. 
We have one day to give thanks. We have one day to commemorate the birth of Christ. We have one day to commemorate July 4th, our independence. We have one day to celebrate veterans who fought in our wars and are still fighting for us and defending us. One day. But no, we need 30 beautiful, bold, proud days to celebrate sexual immorality. Friends, do you know what it's called? It's called drunkenness. It's exactly what John is seeing here from the book of Revelation, that the wine of the sexual morality of the great prostitute made the dwellers of the earth drunk. And when you're drunk, you lose capacity to reason. You lose a sense of equilibrium, balance. You stumble all over the place. This is what's happening right now. And by the way, this is international. It's global. Okay? Uh, it's, uh, there's big controversy right now because I guess, I just heard this myself, Mike Pence, the Vice President of the United States, um, stopped the uh, hanging of the pride flag at U.S. embassies around the world. So the LGBT community wanted the pride flag raised for the month of June at U.S. NBC embassies in other nations. This is, this is crazy. So now we are a two-flagged state. Now we are a two-flagged nation. We celebrate our freedom as a nation. Then we celebrate our sexuality, and we need the whole world to hear about it. Like, do you understand? What is this? It's drunkenness. It's sexual morality making our nation drunk. How many remember this image? I'm going to put it up on the screen. This is an image, if you're listening, of the White House draped in the pride flag colors. Now, this was done on the night that the Supreme Court um, made its decision in Obergefell, uh, in the Obergefell case that made gay marriage a national constitutionally protected right. And that night, uh, President Obama's administration had the White House, listen to this, you know this, draped in the colors of the pride flag. I was just thinking about this. Can you imagine any other flag being projected onto the White House of our nation? Like, could you imagine? Just think about it. I'm, I'm only emphasizing this because I want you to wake up from the drunkenness that is all around you as a culture because it's everywhere. It's pervasive. It's, in, it's incredibly pervasive. But could you imagine, like, the, I don't know, Confederate flag being broadcast. I mean, uh, there would be riots in the streets if the Confederate flag was ever shined on the White House. And by the way, I am not for doing that. I think that would be disgusting and disgraceful. <laughs> or how about the British flag? Why don't we just put Canada's flag up there? How about China's flag? You know, how about we pick a nation? How about Mexico? Let's put Mexico's flag on the White House. My point is that there is a drunkenness around this issue. There's a drunkenness in our society. And by the way, I'm not picking on Obama because even our current president has made this great proclamation for the month of June to remind us that he is trying to decriminalize homosexuality around the world. Again, what is that concern of ours to what is that a concern of ours to for us? That's not a concern. That's like, like not a national concern. The president is for the protection of the Constitution. That's his job, to uphold the Constitution, protect the citizens of this nation. What do we worry about the citizens of other nations and the laws in other nations? They are their own nations. But you see how it has become, what did, what did John say? What did he say? The kings of the earth, the leaders of the earth have committed sexual morality with the great prostitute. And the ironic thing, about the day that President Obama, the ironic thing about the day that President Obama shined the gay flag on the White House in 2015. Do you know that same night? Do you know where he was? 
this is a little bit of history for you, recent history. He was at the wake of nine African-American churchgoers in Charleston, South Carolina, who were gunned down in cold blood by, I don't even want to mention his name because I'm sick and tired of the names of these shooters. We need to ignore the shooters and talk about the victims. How ironic that in a true hate crime where African-Americans were gunned down by a white supremacist, that night, President Obama is speaking at that, that ceremony, that, that um, memorial. But the day of that memorial, he is celebrating the quote-unquote civil liberties of LGBT. I mean, it's ironic. And I would just like to say that if I was, um, and I, t- I have conversations about this with, with my, with my uh, African-American friends, I ask them, don't you get upset a little bit that civil rights has been co-opted to become this, this whole agenda for sexual expression? As an African-American, don't you get upset that they have literally lifted the language of everything that you worked for as a people, legitimately, to bring about true civil liberties for black Americans and Hispanic Americans and non-white Americans, and they have co-opted the entire language for sexual deviancy. Doesn't that bother you at some point? It bothers me. It would bother me if I was not white, but I, it bothers me as a white person. And I think this is part of the drunkenness, though. This is part of the drunkenness that has come upon our culture. And church Again, I always say this regularly when we talk about these issues. You know, I'm not here to police non-Christians. I'm talking to Christians when I talk about these things. This is a Christian podcast intended for a Christian audience. And you need to know what's really real in your society so that you can live faithfully as a believer. But remember what the scriptures teach us. Ephesians 5.5 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. No inheritance. So I'm not talking to non-Christians. I'm talking to Christians. You better watch out for this drunkenness because it infiltrates the church. It infiltrates the church. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But another passage, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. How about this? Let me change the word a little bit. Do not be drunk. <laughs> Do not be drunk, drunk with the spirit of this age, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And now look at the next verse. But such were some of you. You were these things. Your identity in Christ is not tied to your sexuality. Mm-mm. No, 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 no. You are not gay. If you are in Christ, you are not gay. You are not even heterosexual. You are a human loved by God if you are in Christ. Will you have proclivities toward one thing or another that's immoral? Absolutely. I do. You do. Everybody does. That's not my identity. That's not my, my proclivities that want me to go out of the boundaries of God's protective words and commandments. That is not my identity. God has washed me from that. He has cleansed me. He has sanctified me. He has justified me in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, when we get saved, we get freed from all the other things, all the other proclivities that our culture right now is telling us to define ourselves by. That's the beauty of the gospel. So back to chapter 17 in Revelation. There is a serious problem with the great prostitute in the church because let's be real now, Christian, fellow Christians. The church has been just as guilty with this stuff. The church has been just as sexually immoral as the world. 
uh, the, uh, every other year, it seems, we're getting another report of mass instances of Catholic priests abusing little boys and little girls behind the, behind the doors in the private places of the Catholic Church. And, and, and even the Protestants, Protestants are not exempt, you know? Uh, time and time and time again, we see youth pastor indicted on child sexual abuse charges. Sex, sexual morality, it's drunkenness, and it invades the church. Now, historicists, I hate to say this to my Catholic listeners, if there are any, <laughs> but they actually say the great prostitute is the Roman Catholic Church. This is the historicist view. Um, and you say, well, that's kind, of, that's kind of hard on Catholics. And let me just point out two things. Number one, there's a lot of good, faithful Catholics who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I'm not implicating all Catholics here. But we have to admit that the Catholic Church has a ton of baggage in this regard. A ton of baggages. A ton of baggage in this regard. Um, historically, there have been some seriously sexually immoral popes. I'm thinking about Pope John XII, who was pope from 955 to 963. According to historians, he was, quote, guilty of almost every crime, violated virgins and widows, high and low, lived with his father's mistress, made the papal palace a brothel, and was killed while in the act of adultery by the woman's enraged husband. That is a fact. That is a pope of the Catholic Church from 955 to 963. So there is some argument here to be made for the fact that the Catholic Church, and I'm talking about the corrupt Catholic Church, I understand there are very faithful Catholics out there who love Jesus. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the corrupt Catholic Church. I'm talking about the corrupt, even Protestant leaders who have let sexual immorality into the church. And this is pervasive, and it uh, makes people drunk. Um, now, uh, we got to move on. Verse 3, let's go there. And he carried me away, verse 3, in the spirit into a wilderness, and I'll talk about that in a moment, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. We'll talk about those in a moment. The, wor the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. By the way, purple and scarlet, just ironically, those are the two bookends of the pride flag colors, purple and scarlet, okay? The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Okay, John's carried away in the, into the wilderness to see the woman. Why? Well, here's why. This is, in, this is symbolic of the Christian's view of the world and the sexually immoral uh, drunkenness of our world, that God brings us to the desert to see it so that we see what it really offers. See, sexual, immoral, sexual immorality and, you know, the, 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 the mantras of our age, the sexual liberation of our age promises fulfillment. It promises satisfaction. It promises joy and, and love and, and happiness. And it really just ends up in desertness emptiness. That's why he's carried out into the wilderness. And she's sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, seven heads, ten horns, okay? Purple and scarlet. Uh, these are also royal colors, so it's just, again, just drawing to the fact that this is going to be uh, endorsed, promoted, and uh, celebrated by the leaders of the world. It's amazing to me how America is so sexualized and also 
pushing it on the rest of the world. We, this is our greatest export right now. Pornography is our greatest export as a country right now. You're just pushing it on the world. Just saying, this is what's going to make you happy. The rest of the world doesn't want this. The rest of the world does not think this way. You know, it's really sad to think that we know better than the rest of the world. In fact, there was this argument. I talked about this on the podcast a couple weeks ago. But the United Methodist Church, global church, has churches in Africa, has churches in America. The American churches trying to embrace homosexuality, trying to embrace the LGBT cause and welcoming it with open arms. The African church, no way. We're not, we're not interested. So there's a divide between the African church and the American church. The other countries do not want the export of our sexual morality. America, get over yourself. We're not that important. We're not that great. We need to humble ourselves, honestly. But also, look at it. It says this. That she's, endo- she's adorned with jewelry. Okay? That's in verse 4. She's adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. So this is a wealthy woman. Sexual immorality and wealth. So America, very sexualized, very wealthy. Yet... One of the most depressed countries in the world. A recent report from U.S. News reports that the United States is the third-ranked nation in diagnosed depressive disorders. India is number one, China's number second, number two, and we are number three. Just four spots higher than Pakistan. <laughs> I mean, you ever think about this? Like we are the wealthiest country in the world. We are also the most sexually immoral country in the world. And we are the third saddest country in the world. Pakistan is happier than us. I mean, it's just, again, wilderness. It's emptiness. Okay, verse four. I'm sorry, verse five. Let's go on. And on her head was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great. Look at Babylon there. Very important. Mother of prostitutes and averse abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. So another thing here. The blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Okay, stop there. She's drunk with the blood of the saints. She hates Christianity. This world system where sexual deviancy becomes celebrated and promoted will always hate Christianity. Why? Because Christianity represents everything that they don't agree with. And this is a a growing reality in our world. But before we get there, let's look at the fact that she's called Babylon the Great. Now, Babylon is a term that runs right through the narrative of Holy Scripture from Genesis all the way to right here in Revelation. Babylon. Well, where does it begin? Babylon actually begins in Genesis chapter 11, very familiar story called the Tower of Babel. And what happens? Genesis 11 verse 1 says, the whole earth had one language and the same word. So it's a unity of people. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Verse 4, Then they said, Come, let us build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Celebrate us. Woohoo! What's another word for that? Pride. Lest we disperse, be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Look at the themes of Babylon, the original Tower of Babel. Babylon, okay? Unity. Pride. Industry, making bricks and mortar, name for ourselves, and then a tower that reaches to the heavens. You ever think about this? Why did they make a tower that reaches to the heavens? Why? They wanted to get to heaven on their terms. And guess what happens just before the flood? This is going to knock you out. Just before the, just before the Tower of Babel happens, the, um, I messed up my question. What happens just before the Tower of Babel? The flood. 
So the flood comes, drowns all of mankind, Noah's saved from the ark. Well, how are we going to escape just in case God wants to send another flood? Let's build a tower that will rise us above God's judgment. Do you see what the Tower of Babel, Babylon, represents? Here's what it represents. Unity, pride, industry, uh, name for ourselves, and judgment-free, accountability-free. We want to do life on our terms, and we don't want God to have a say about it. This has been the pervasive nature of the city of Babylon since the, since the Tower of Babel, and it goes right through the Scriptures— it goes right through Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, who actually lost his mind because he was so proud of himself, right through uh, the Old Testament, right into the New Testament. When Peter talks to the church, he writes his epistles, First Peter, he says, she who is in Babylon greets you. What's he talking about? He's talking about Rome. The city of Rome had become a spiritual Babylon for God's people because Rome oppressed and persecuted the saints in the first century. And Peter's writing from there, he says, she who is in Babylon, she being the church, wrestling against the forces of Babylon, Rome, struggling to stay safe and secure, greets you. So right in the, first, in the, in the New Testament, Babylon is the symbol. I want you to see this. Babylon is a symbol for the powerful governmental and world leaders of the age that are overwhelmingly hostile to Christian faith and to the truth that is in Jesus. Secondly, he calls her the mother of prostitutes here in verse 5. So she produces sex and money profiteering. This is what Babylon produces. And she's a mother of earth abominations. She just, she just takes what is sacred and she despises it. She takes what is, what is evil and she makes it sacred and uh, good. That's what it's talking about. Now, look at the last part of verse 6. This is important for you to see. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Why does John even put that down? Why is he marveling? I'll tell you why he's marveling. Because what he's seeing here is he's seeing not just a corrupted world in sexual morality, but remember I talked about this, a corrupted church, a church that has got sexual immorality oozing from within its ranks. And I think what John marvels here at is the fact that the Roman church, a church which had its roots in surviving horrible persecution and struggling faithfully by hiding in catacombs in the first century as they endured suffering for the name of Christ, now being the power player in the city of Rome and being filled with sexual corruption, i.e. the Catholic church and all of the sexual corruption within it. Now, again, I'm not saying all Catholics are implicated here, but I do want to share something with you because it's, re it's real. It's real, all right? There's, there's even a great Catholic news site that I follow. It's called LifeSite News. Great Catholic resource. Even they can see the writing on the wall with a lot of sexual immorality within the church. I, uh, years ago, I was getting my blood taken for an insurance policy, and the woman coming to take my blood, she had a son. She sent him to seminary at the Vatican. I'll never forget the story. He wanted to study to be a priest. He was ready to commit, take his vows. He went to the Vatican City uh, Seminary. Six months later, he comes back. His mom says, What's ha what happened? You were so passionate. You wanted to be a priest. He says, Mom, you wouldn't believe what I saw there. I was in the dorms every single night in the dorms where these young men were aspiring to be, studying to be, quote-unquote, priests of the Catholic Church. Every single night, they would run through the halls, buck naked, knocking on each other's doors, looking for sex. This is in the seminary in the Vatican, in Rome, in the Catholic Church. 
That's her story. I'm just trans- transmitting it to you. That's what I'm talking about, the corruption. So what I think when it says that John marvels greatly is that he's saying, how could the church become so corrupt like this? This church that struggled for righteousness is now endorsing and celebrating unrighteousness. And it's a warning for us, Christians, because we are not immune to the desires of the flesh. We are not immune to temptation. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, right? 1 Corinthians, I think, 10, 13. No temptation has seized you. So what everybody else gets tempted with, guess what, Christian? We're going to get tempted with. The, the difference is, is that we have the power of the Holy Spirit to resist. God will make a way of escape for us, the second part of that verse. Okay, so he marvels greatly. He says, how could the church become so corrupt? And so here here we go. Verse seven, the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. In other words, they will love the beast because it was and is not and is to come. All right. We come now to the most difficult portion of Revelation chapter 17. So Revelation chapter 17, the most difficult chapter. Revelation chapter 17, verse 7 and 8 and 9, the most difficult verses. So pray for me. I'm going to do my best. Here we go. There's a lot of debate about what the seven heads and the ten horns symbolize. And I'm going to tell you right off the bat, there's no real conclusion. What are the seven heads? Which are those nations? Are those? And so the historicist says these are the seven structures of government in the Roman system from uh, the time of Rome's rise in the early uh, 150s BC, and then right through to the adoption of the Catholic Church in the 400s AD, and then right down until Rome's demise in the uh, Middle Ages. And so there's seven forms of government. That's what some people say. There, there's really no like real hard and fast rules about what seven uh, forms of government they are, though. So there's a lot of problems with that. Now, the ten horns, a little bit easier, okay? Uh, the ten horns could represent the fact that Rome in John's day was represented by 10 provinces or was divided into 10 provinces, and it was mainly the provincial leaders who enacted laws to persecute Christians. So maybe there's some good historicist view there. The futurist view of this scripture in the 1990s when I grew up in the church, this was huge. The 10 horns were the European Union. So there was a point at which the European Union had nine nations, never had 10. Today it has 27, uh, 28, depending on what happens with Brexit, right? So that was a big hubbubaloo in the 1990s. That never really materialized in anything. Here's the deal. There's no consensus as to what the seven heads and the ten horns are, but I'm going to tell you what I believe. I believe that if we read Revelation rightly, we see repeated themes of global history for the church. In other words, this is what we're going to endure. As Christians, this is what we're going to go through. And we need to be ready. We need to know what's really happening. So ancient Rome, right? Ancient Rome persecutes the saints. And at the time, it's persecuting and putting to death our brothers and sisters in the first century, right? It seemed impregnable. It seemed overwhelming. It was powerful. It was the most powerful, most dominant world power in human history. And, by the way, it was wealthy. It was powerful, and it was over-sexualized. Now think about, that's ancient Rome. Uh, By the way, in ancient Rome, homosexuality promoted, celebrated, totally fine, totally wonderful. Well, the church comes in, and the church creates new standards of behavior. The church creates monogamous, monogamy as as the standard, God's standard. And and now we are moving away from that. Now we are, we, um, we call it our culture, not we, but our culture calls this progress. Guess what it actually is? It's regress. Progress, celebrating uh, 
divergent forms of sexuality, celebrating, you know, whatever, you know, gender adoption that you want to embrace, celebrating transitional surgery, celebrating, you know, emasculating yourself, all these things that we are celebrating now. And we say, this is progress, this is progress, this is progress. Friends, I got news for you. It's not progress, it's regress. We are actually going back to the ways of the ancient world that actually corrupted and destroyed nation after nation after nation after nation because this stuff does not work. History has proved that sexual abhorrent behaviors Sexual aberrant behaviors do not work. They do not be, provide a healthy society. So some of the laws that are being passed right now, by the way, in the West are celebrating, championing, championing regressive sexual behaviors from the ancient world, which destroyed the ancient world. That's why it says that it was and it's now coming back and the world marvels to see it. Don't you see it there on the text in, ver- in the last part of verse 8, they marvel. This is wonderful. Let's celebrate this. Pride and, and progress. And really, no, it's regress and it's, and, it's, and it's ignorance. And some Christians are ignorant of what's happening right now with laws that are being passed. In Canada, they passed a law recently that if a child is gender dysphoric, wants to change his genders, and the parents don't want to provide uh, support, and medication to help that child, said child, go through the transition. Guess what happens according to Canada law right now? The, the government can come in and take the child out of the parent's home. Loving parents doesn't matter. Providing parents doesn't matter. Parents that put clothes on their back and food on their plates doesn't matter. If you don't celebrate, if you don't endorse that child's gender dysphoria, we are coming in and we are taking your child. By the way, there are several state houses in the country, in, in America right now, that are considering the exact same bill. Your freedoms will come under attack. It's just a reality. This is, this is the comeback of the immoral age. And this is why I say you got to read the book of Revelation to see what's really real. Um, so going on, here's what it says. Verse 9, this calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads, okay, are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Okay, pause there. When it talks about the seven heads, remember, it says that they are seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, so there's seven kings. Let's do the math. Five have fallen. One is, and one has yet to come. All right, what the heck is this talking about? This is, this is why people stay away from the book of Revelation. But let me tell you what I think it's saying. I believe it's saying this. The five heads and this, well, let's talk about the seven horns represent the completion because seven is the number of completion in the Bible. The completion of the anti-Christian governmental powers. Uh, governments and powers, like we've talked about all podcast long, all episode long, that promote abhorrent behaviors, that promote wealth and luxury, that are seductive, that make the nations drunk because people actually literally lose their sense of being in these devices, okay? Five have fallen. Well, when did the five fall? I believe that at the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, okay, five of the powers of Satan fallen. It means that the power of the cross severely disabled, okay, the powers of the world. And so we are living in the church age where Satan has been severely disabled. But notice what it says. One is, 
The sixth one still is. So the sixth one still stands. I think that represents the limited power of Satan in our age right now. He is the God of this world. He is the prince of the power of the age. He is the leader of all those who are blinded by their sin and lost and, and, and separated from God and darkened in their understanding. Ephesians chapter 4 language, right? So he is the leader of all those people, and he is still running around the world, causing deception, leading the kings of the earth into immorality and all kinds of other nonsense. But there's one to come. So what, what does the one to come represent? What does that seventh one that's going to come represent? Here's what I think it means. I believe that that represents the fact that God is going to allow, at the end times, Satan to unleash unprecedented deception upon the nations of the world. And he will indeed make them drunk with the wine of the great prostitute of sexual morality and wealth and luxury. And we see this happening now. We see now how every single major successful company in the world must celebrate Pride Month in some way, shape, or form, must promote these behaviors, or they are vilified and castigated. And there's lots of money to be made in Pride Month. There's lots of money to be made in this issue. I warned you that this was going to be the least politically correct podcast episode we've ever done. <laughs> and if you're still with us, congratulations to you. <laughs> but let's continue. So what you're seeing now is I believe we are approaching that seventh horn where God is starting to you know, allow the powers of evil to overwhelm the nations. You say, that's not fair. Why does God allow this? Do you know why? Because we have rejected God. He has given us grace. He gave us his son. He gave us Jesus. He gave us his blood. And, and we have basically, not we, the church, but the world has basically said, no, thanks. We still want to do our thing. And so when we reject God, we can't just say we reject God and, no, and nothing else happens. No, when we reject God, we are given over people, humanity, Romans 1. We are given over to our own lusts, our own abhorrent behaviors, our own desires, our own licentiousness, and we destroy ourselves. We wreck our own lives. Human beings wreck themselves as they run from God. And so I think that this is a wake-up call for the church to say, wait, these, these things matter. We have to talk about Pride Month. We have to talk about these things because it's written about in the book of Revelation so that we are not ignorant when it happens. We are prepared. We are prayed up. We are ready to face it. We are ready to stay strong in faith and walk away knowing that we are not part of the whore of Babylon. We are the bride of Christ. Amen. So let's go on. Verse 11. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seventh. Okay, so... This goes back to what I was talking about, right? Not progress, regress. We're not going forward as a culture with this stuff. We're going backwards. So when he says it was not and now is, it's an eighth, but it's part of the seven. I know, confusing language. Let me break it down for you. Eight is the biblical number for resurrection. And I'll prove that to you. Jesus is resurrected on what day? Sunday. We celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. But guess what? This, guess what the resurrection day is? It is the eighth day of Holy Week because Holy Week starts the week before. And you have Sunday, Palm Sunday, he rides into the, rides into the city, goes seven days in the city. He dies on uh, the Saturday, depending on your view, he dies on either Thursday night or Friday morning, Friday, it doesn't really matter. Um, and then three days later, he rises on Sunday. That's the eighth day of Holy Week, eight is the number of resurrection. What this language is saying, coded language for saying, that as the return of Christ approaches, 
we are also going to see the return of all the ancient pagan revelry of Rome. We are going to see it come back in full force. And the world and the nations are going to marvel and they're going to get drunk on this and they're going to think it's wonderful and fantastic. And then look what it says in verse 12. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive royal, I mean, receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. I believe that these ten horns represent, um, and again, ten is another number in Scripture for um, testing and also a number for completion. So I believe that what is happening is this is a complete handover of the national and the, and the governmental powers to the regressive embrace of pagan revelry from the ancient world into the modern world as the return of Christ approaches because men rejected God, so God handed them over to the lust of their flesh. I hope this is clear. I'm hoping I'm making this clear as I can, but there's a lot in this coded language, but we got to push through it and see it for what it's saying to us. There's going to be a resurrection of the pagan revelry of the past right before the return of Christ. Are we seeing it right now? You better believe we are. The return of Christ is approaching. Verse 13, let's go on. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. In other words, we, well, whatever it takes to satisfy the sexual urges and the wealth urges and the desire for riches and fame and fortune, whatever it takes. And it says, verse 14, they will make war on the lamb. But guess what? The lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. We win, Christian. We win. We win in Christ. So as you see this happening, don't get alarmed. And that's just a preview of coming attractions in the book of Revelation. It just kind of like touches it there in verse 14. The, the lamb wins, but then it kind of gets back. Look what it says, verse 15. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Already talked about that. And I want you just to see this. As pagan revelry makes a resurrection right before the turn of, return of Christ, all the nations of the world are going to fall for it. All the nations of the world are going to fall. Now, you think about this. 40 years ago, how would this have happened? How? I can imagine reading Revelation 40 years ago. I remember reading Revelation 40 years ago because I was around 40 years ago. It, how could it all be so quick? How could all this be so pervasive so fast? Aha, aha, the internet. And not just the internet, but now wireless internet. And not just wireless internet, but on our hand, in our palms, in our pockets, on our watches, internet access, where we will get the pervasive influence of the export of America's regressive progressivism to export to the rest of the world. I mean, I've been to Guatemala, I've been to Guatemala, I've been to El Salvador, I've been to places where they are sleeping on dirt floors, but guess what they have? A smartphone. <laughs> sleeping on dirt floors, but I have a smartphone so that I can get all the sexualized content I can ever imagine. This is the export of the regressive, progressive culture of our age. So all the nations are going to be influenced by this. And I want you just to make sure, I want you to know, and uh, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 13. There are two groups of people that are going to grow, grow together, the wheat and the tares. So as God, by grace, through faith in Christ Jesus, pulls people out of the nations into the family of God from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language, guess what else is happening? The, the whore of Babylon is going to be bringing people into her family from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And those are going to grow together. Okay, verse 16. Watch this. This is, this is going to blow your mind. 
So you think like the Ten Horns and the prostitute and the beast, they're all, you know, hanging out. They're drinking Budweiser beers and they're having a good time. And yeah, amen. We're uh, we're not Christian. We're doing what we want to do. Sex on without without limits. Hey, yeah, this is how this is real living. You would think that they'd all be like happy chappies forever. Right. (laughs) Look what happens in verse 16. And the Ten Horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. What? They they were just like fornicating with her. They were getting drunk on her love. Now they hate her? (laughs) Yeah. Because sin always disappoints, friend. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that is dominion of the kings of the earth. These verses are talking about the self-destruction of evil. It can confuse you because you think, wait, they were getting along in the early part of verse seven, chapter 17. Now they hate each other. Yes, they hate each other. Because when you get drunk, there are some people, they turn into an angry drunk. There are some people, they are alcoholics, they hate alcohol, but they keep drinking it. And there are some people, they are enslaved to sexual morality, and they hate it, but they love it. They hate it because sin disappoints and always frustrates you. It never leaves you fulfilled and satisfied. It leaves you frustrated and embittered with terrible consequences. Do you ever notice how angry people get with the Christian faith? Do you ever notice, like, for instance, recently at a pro-march, pro-life rally, a pro-life rally in Massachusetts, Boston, Massachusetts, anti-life people, pro-abortion protesters, counter-protesters, showed up at a very peaceful rally of 600 people at the State House in Boston and threw urine on the pro-life marchers. Why? Why? Why are you so angry? You live in Massachusetts. Massachusetts is the most pro-abortion state in the United States. You have no worries. If you're worried about losing the right to abortion in Massachusetts, I got news. You have no worries. This state loves killing babies. Sadly, loves it. All right? So why are you throwing urine at 600, small number, 600 pro-life marchers who just want to say, we believe life begins at conception because we've read the scriptures? But do you just see the anger, the unfettered, they lose their minds. Some drunks are angry drunks. That's just a reality. It's just lost in sin, frustrated, angry, disappointed with the fact that they serve these idols and these idols always leave them empty. And that's the reality of sin. Here's what it says in Isaiah 57, verse 20. The wicked are like the tossing sea. It cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. It's incredible how this happens. It's incredible how empty they are. Uh, Drew, Drew Pinsky, celebrity counselor, celebrity uh, counselor to the stars. He wrote a book about the narcissism, narcissism, sorry, <laughs> narcissism, narcissism of Hollywood celebrities. And he says that he has this regular meeting with one of the most famous actors in our time. He says if he told you his name, you would know who he is. There's not a soul on earth that doesn't know who this guy is. In one of his counseling sessions, this guy said, as one of the most famous celebrities in the world, has privately said to me, darkly, he considers himself, quote, a piece of S-H-I-T around whom the whole world revolves. You chase fame, you chase fortune, you chase sexual morality, you do all these things. You have sex on screen with somebody who's not your spouse for money. That's prostitution, friend. And, and, and they're empty. They're in the wilderness. This is the reality. Madonna Several years ago, in a Vanity Fair magazine article said, every time I accomplish something, I feel like a special human being, but after a little while, I feel mediocre and uninteresting again. 
I find I have to get myself past this again and again. My drive in life is from the horrible fear of being mediocre. I have to prove I'm somebody. You know what that's called? That's just called being lost. That's just called not knowing Christ. Man chases these idols, these idols of fame, fortune, sexual liberation, and then they are consumed by them, and then they hate them. There's a story in the Old Testament that sums this up beautifully. There's a story of one of David's children. His name is Amnon. And in the story, 2 Samuel 13, Amnon falls desperately, head over heels, in love with his half-sister Tamar. And he wants to have sex with her. He, he lusts after her. She says, don't do it. Don't do this to me, brother. Go to the king. Go to, go, our, go to our father. Maybe he will make us man and wife. Who knows? He says, no, no, no. I want you for myself. He takes her. He rapes her. First, he tricks her into coming alone into his bedroom, and then he rapes her. You know what the Bible says? After he raped her, it says this in verse 15 of 2 Samuel 13, then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Ouch. Do you know what that is? Men chase their idols. They get them, and then they hate them for what they did to them. That's the reality of sin. Sin always disappoints. So, Revelation's saying, the beast, the prostitute, the ten horns, the seven kings, you might think they're all holly jolly, happy-go-lucky people just having fun, hating on Christians. No, they're not. They're miserable. And they're going to destroy themselves. There's a passage of Scripture, Revelation, um, Matthew chapter 13, wheat and tares growing together. And the Bible says, the Son of Man will send his angels. This is how that parable ends. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So there's these two families, these two international families growing right now, Christian. The pagan revelry, the progressive, quote, regressive culture of our age, going back to the ancient pagan ways of sexual morality and lust of the flesh and thinking that's progress, no, it's regress. And it's going to be international and Pride Month, June, every year. I've watched it. It's getting bigger and louder and more pervasive, and it's going to get worse for Christians. But guess what? As that happens, the wheat are growing together from every tongue, tribe, language, and nation, and they will be gathered into the barn with Christ. And the Bible says they will stand the test of time. They will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Righteousness in Christ helps you last. And not just last, it helps you shine. This is why I go with Christ. This is why I don't follow the mantras of our age. This is why you have to, because it's the only thing that actually works. So summary, let's talk about this. Number one, do not be surprised by the international unification and celebration of immorality. Do not be surprised by this. Number one, it's going to happen. It's going to get more loud and more pervasive. Second, beware of the seductive nature of an over-sexualized and wealth-obsessed society because that's what we are becoming more and more. And number three, grow, Christian, in God's house with God's people, strong, secure, this and this alone leads to lasting peace and contentment. And I'm telling you something. These are exciting days. I know 
I know there's going to be people who say, well, this is just a lot of hate, hate, hate. Well, that's just the language of the lost, friend. No, Christ, no true Bible-minded Christian hates anybody. We don't hate people. We love people. But we also know what God's Word has said, and we want to do life God's way, and we want to share God's message of grace with anybody who will listen. I hope you will listen. I hope you have listened. I hope you have learned. I hope this has been helpful to your faith, to help you walk, and to know what's really real behind the reality that you face every day. It is my joint privilege to bring this content to you. Let us know again where you watched in the comments. Let us know if the deep end is helpful to you. That would be also helpful for us to get some feedback from you. I look forward to hearing from you. I look forward to seeing you next week on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End Podcast. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and in your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End Podcast.